Hey, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Church. Know everybody here, but in case not, I'm Josh, one of the pastors here. Thank you guys for joining us in person. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us to, to worship Jesus today. Um, if, if you were around last week, you know that we started a new series last week, a new series entitled Come Holy Spirit. And what we're doing really over the next seven weeks or so is we're going to be looking at the first few chapters of the book of Acts, this, this history that, the, that uh, Luke, one of the early followers of Jesus, wrote about the history of the early church and how Jesus is continuing to build his kingdom in his world. And so we're going to look at these first few chapters of the book of Acts to see what does it look like when the Holy Spirit enters into the lives of Christ's people. And what does it look like when the Spirit comes in and then sends us out to advance the kingdom of Christ in his world? Now, you might not be aware of this today, but today is actually a really important day in the church calendar. Maybe you're not familiar with the the traditional church calendar, but, but Christmas and Easter and Good Friday and Palm Sunday, those are all actually part of a larger year-round calendar that the church has historically used to remind ourselves of some of the core elements of Christianity. And today, it's Pentecost Sunday. It's the day when Christians around the world and throughout history have traditionally celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And I think it's helpful for us to celebrate that. It's helpful for us to remember that because we celebrate Christmas to remind ourselves of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus. We celebrate Easter to remind ourselves of the resurrection of Jesus. But what we tend to do as as especially American Protestant Christians is we tend to forget about the Holy Spirit. We forget about Pentecost. But but if we're going to live the lives that Jesus calls us to live as his followers, if we're going to do and be what he calls us to do and be as his church, then we desperately need the power and the presence of God. Because all of this is impossible without the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is I want to go to Acts 2 today to look at the day of Pentecost and how the Spirit descended on those first followers of Jesus. And then I want us to ask, what's it going to mean in our lives as followers of Jesus 2,000 years later when the Holy Spirit lands in our hearts, in our lives, in our world? Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them telling in our own tongue, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. I want us to ask that question today. What does this mean? 
Like we believe as Christians that the Holy Spirit has, has been poured out by Jesus. We believe as Christians that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that the very power and presence of God is living within us. But what does that mean? What does it mean in my life? What's it going to mean for us as a church as we are filled with the power and presence of God? What's it going to look like as he sends us out on his mission in his world? Verse 1 says, all this took place on the day of Pentecost. So like, what's the day of Pentecost? Pentecost was one of the major feasts of the Jewish faith. It took place 50 days after Passover. So if you're following the story of Jesus, here's where we are. Jesus is crucified during the feast of Passover. He's crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. And then he spends the next 40 days with his disciples, convincing them that he is actually alive and then teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then you get to the passage we looked at last week in Acts chapter 1, where he says, I'm going to send you out as my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But he also says, wait, wait for the promise of the Father, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you because you can't do this in your own power. We need the power and the presence of God to accomplish the mission of God. And then and in Acts 1, 9 through 11, Jesus is lifted up into the clouds and he ascends to the right hand of the Father to rule on the throne of heaven. And they're left waiting. According to my best math, they're probably waiting just over a week. They're waiting for Jesus to send the Spirit to fill them with power from on high. And then this happens in Acts 2. The Spirit of God breaks in. God rents the heavens and comes down. And Acts 2 tells us what that looks like. Acts 2 shows us what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven invades our world and our hearts. And it's symbolized by three phenomena, three signs that demonstrate the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2. You see this, verse 2, wind. Verse 3, fire. Verse 4, tongues. And what's so interesting is that if you read the book of Acts, you actually never find these exact same things happening ever again in the book of Acts. You read the rest of the New Testament, and you never find this expectation that these exact same things are ever going to happen again. So in one sense, it's a one-time event. These actual physical phenomena do not repeat themselves. But in another sense, everyone who is filled with the Spirit... Every follower of Jesus, every single one of us who trusts in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins to make us right with God, every single one of us should expect to experience what these things represent. We should expect to be filled with power from on high. The wind, the fire, the tongues, they might not literally happen like they did in Acts 2, but they are symbols of a reality that every follower of Jesus experiences with the Holy Spirit inside of them. And so I want to ask, if, if we're a people filled with the Spirit of the living God, then what should we expect to experience? What does it look like when the Spirit of Jesus fills his people? And we're going to see three things in this passage when the Spirit of God shows up. Three things. One, life-giving power. Two, divine presence, and three, universal proclamation. Life-giving power, divine presence, universal proclamation. First thing you see is life-giving power. Look at verse one. When the spirit of Pentecost, or when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
So that's the first sign of what the Spirit does, this mighty rushing wind. Now, we've talked about this before. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew. And the the word in both languages for wind or for breath is the same word for spirit. In Greek, it's the word pneuma. It's what we get pneumonia from. In in Hebrew, it's the word ruach. So you got to like, you got a hairball in your throat, ruach. So Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the wind, the spirit, the ruach of life, and the man became a living creature. Ezekiel 37 that I mentioned last week, Ezekiel prophesies the word of the Lord over the dry bones of the people of Israel, and they're filled with wind, with breath, with spirit, with ruach, and they come alive as the armies of the living God. John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus breathes on his disciples, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to make you alive again. I'm going to raise you from the dead by the power of my spirit. As God breathed into Adam the breath of life, I am going to breathe into you the breath of new life. I'm going to raise you from the dead by the spirit, by the wind, by the breath of God. I am going to put my breath in your lungs to make you truly and fully alive. Now, that's important for us to get. Because that goes against the grain of all the ways that our world conditions us to think. From the earliest days, from our earliest age, the the world teaches us that we are strong enough. We are good enough. We can do it. Jesus teaches us the opposite. Jesus says, this is why you need me. This is why you need my spirit. Because we don't have any breath in our lungs. We need him to breathe the breath of life into us. Notice verse 2. Notice where this wind comes from. It doesn't come from within themselves. It comes down from heaven. See, our world says your main problem is outside of you, and the solution comes from inside of you. Jesus says your main problem is inside of you, and the solution comes from outside of you. Our world says your main problem is your family, It's your job. It's your political enemies. And and the solution is to look inside yourself, to believe in yourself, to be true to yourself, to assert yourself. Jesus says your main problem is not outside of you. Your main problem is you. And the solution is to die to yourself, to look outside of yourself, to look to my death and resurrection to make you right with God and to look to the life-giving power of the Spirit who I am pouring out inside of you. And when we do, when we stop trusting in ourselves and stop trying to save ourselves, he does what only he can do. He fills fills us with the very breath of the living God. He makes us alive by the power of his spirit in us. So the spirit brings life-giving power. Second, the spirit brings divine presence. Look at verse three. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, this is not just a cool pyrotechnic display going on here. This is important because throughout the history, fire is a symbol of the presence of God. Genesis chapter 15, when God enters into a covenant with Abraham, he shows up as a burning fire. Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses, he shows up as a burning bush, as a bush that burns and is not consumed. Exodus chapter 19, when God rescues the people of Israel, brings them out of slavery in Egypt, brings them into a relationship with himself at Mount Sinai, he shows up as a fire 
The rest of the book of Exodus, how does God lead his people? How does he show that he is with them? He shows up as a pillar of fire. Fire is a symbol of the presence of God. It's how God makes an entrance. It's how God shows up. It's how God reveals himself to his people. There's something different happening here in the book of Acts. In Exodus 19, if you know the story, when God shows up at Mount Sinai, the people are terrified. The fire stays up there on the mountain, but the people stay away from the mountain. And Moses goes up on the mountain and prays for them because they knew that they were sinful people and they couldn't come into the presence of a holy God. So Moses went up on the mountain as their mediator and made peace between them and God. People stayed at the bottom. The fire stayed up on the top of the mountain. But that's not the way it happens in Acts. In Acts, the fire doesn't stay on the top of the mountain. In Acts, the fire comes down to the people. And it doesn't just come down on one guy. The fire of the presence of God falls on every single believer in Jesus. In Acts, the people run away from the presence of God. Or in Exodus, the people run from the presence of God. In Acts, the presence of God enters into them. Because Jesus is a better mediator. Jesus is a better Moses. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has gone into the very presence of God. He brings us into the presence of God, and now he sends the very presence of God to live inside of us. In Exodus, the people couldn't come near to the fire because it would have consumed them. In Acts, the fire comes down to the people, and it rests on us. And it fills us because Jesus has died and gone into the heavens. And now we can experience the holy fire of the presence of God without being destroyed. Now, through the presence of the Spirit, every believer is a burning bush. We burn with the fire of the presence of God. Now, let me ask you, what if we really believed that? What if we really live that way? What if we went through our week as burning bushes filled with the power and the presence of God? I mean, how would that set us free from fear? If we believe that the God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, lives inside of us, we wouldn't have to fear any of the fires of life or death because we have the holy fire of God living inside of us. How would that set us free from the need to prove ourselves? If we believe that the perfect, holy king of the universe loves us so much and wants to be with us so badly that he lives inside of us, how would it change the way that we relate to our friends and our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers? On the one hand, it would liberate us from insecurity. We wouldn't be dependent on their opinions because we know that God himself lives within us. But on the other hand, it would set us free to love and serve them wholeheartedly because we know that the spirit of the living God is inside of us, empowering us to share the good news of Jesus with words of truth and with deeds of love. Listen, friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, then you are a carrier of the presence of the living God. You are a burning bush that testifies to the reality that God has stepped into our world and come near to us. And Jesus has specifically sent you to your workplace, to your family, to your neighborhood, to bring the power and the presence of Jesus to people who have never met him. Spirit brings life-giving power. The Spirit brings divine presence. Thirdly, the Spirit brings universal proclamation. 
Universal proclamation, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's lots of questions about tongues in the New Testament. We don't have time to get into all of it today. If you've got questions about that, um, we can definitely schedule a time to talk about some of that. But, but in this passage, at least, it seems pretty clear that these tongues are other languages. And, and the Spirit specifically gives them the ability to speak these other languages so that they can preach the gospel to these people from all over the world. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. I think this is amazing. Jesus has told them, you're going to proclaim the gospel to people of every tribe and tongue and nation. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so I'm sitting there in the huddle and I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, okay, let's go. Let's make a plan. Let's make a strategy. Let's figure out how to get this thing done. It's actually not what happens. They didn't figure out how to get to the mission field. God brought the mission field to them brought people from all over the world to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And then he sent them out to proclaim the good news of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. Now, again, as I said last week, that doesn't mean that we don't strategize. That doesn't mean that we don't plan. Often the Spirit of God works through our strategies and plans. But it does mean that God's plans are better than our plans. God is ultimately the one who accomplishes his mission. And you can be confident that he has you where you are on purpose. Because what God is doing is bigger than any of us. Bigger than anything we could imagine. So interesting here. When the gospel, if you notice this, is first preached to the world, it is preached in all these different languages at once. Because in God's kingdom, no language or culture is more important than any other. It's interesting if you look at the the religions of the world, Christianity is the most culturally diverse faith on earth. And that's not just in terms of ethnicity or skin tone. It's in terms of culture. Christianity looks different in different cultures around the world. It even looks different in different cultures here in the U.S. And that is a beautiful thing because Jesus has redeemed a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he is bringing people of every conceivable background into his kingdom. I personally have found myself in places around the world with people who speak a different language and have a different skin tone, and come from a different background, and have radically different politics from mine. But we are united as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus, and in many ways that unites us at a deeper level, even than the connections we have in our own biological families. Jesus is reuniting humanity in his kingdom. The way that Acts 2 is written, Acts 2 is actually written as a reversal of Genesis 11. So if you're familiar with Genesis 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, here's what happens. Uh, Human beings all have one language, and they all have one culture. And so they decide to get together, and they decide, we're going to build a tower to heaven, and we're going to make a great name for themselves. 
And God saw what they were doing. And God knew that we would eventually destroy ourselves in our attempts to build our own kingdoms. So God came down at Babel. And he confused their language. And, and, and the human race splintered into all these different groups. But now in Acts 2, God is reversing the story of Babel. At Babel, human beings tried to build a tower to the heavens. At Pentecost, the heavens came down to earth. At Babel, human beings tried to build their own kingdom. At Pentecost, God begins reuniting humanity in his kingdom. At Babel, God confused the languages of humanity and they splintered into all these different groups. At Pentecost, he spoke in all these different languages to tell one liberating story, to tell the good news of Jesus who came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. He begins to heal the divisions in the human family by putting us all under one king named Jesus. And this is important. Because I believe in many ways our society is going through its own Tower of Babel moment. We've tried to build this great civilization by our wisdom and our power for our glory. And we believe this narrative that economic prosperity and scientific advancement and political democracy and enlightened consciences can create the kingdom of heaven on earth. And if anything, the past year has shown us just how naive that was. Shown us how splintered we are. There is such division and faction and vitriol and hatred in our country and even in many churches. And I'm so grateful. Like, it is only the Spirit of God that has preserved our unity here at Christ Community Church. That is not something to take lightly. That is the grace of God and the Spirit of God. But also, that will only continue by the power of the Spirit. It will only continue as we walk in the Spirit and depend on the Spirit and keep Jesus and his kingdom at the center of who we are and what we do. When we try to build our own kingdoms, we get chaos and division. When the Spirit of God breaks in, he unites us in one kingdom under the reign of King Jesus. God's Spirit fills us with his power and his presence and sends us out to proclaim the good news. That's the whole point of the tongues here. Right? God didn't just give them these tongues just to impress people. He gave them this ability so that they could proclaim the mighty works of God, so they could proclaim the gospel. And look how the people responded, verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Now, we're going to see more of how they responded next week when we get to the, to the rest of, of Acts chapter 2. But right here, you see how they respond. They thought they were drunk. And in one sense, they were, right? A foreign substance has invaded their bodies and made them do and say things they otherwise wouldn't say, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, if, you, if you've ever been drunk, if you've ever been around someone who's been drunk, it takes away your inhibitions. Part of what makes it so dangerous, it gives you that liquor courage, And it can also make you feel happy until that hangover hits the next morning. But it makes you feel these senses of joy or maybe these emotions of happiness in the moment. And that's what these people who were listening to them thought was happening at first. See, these disciples were so full of joy. And they were so full of courage that they thought they must be drunk. And as I said, in one sense they were. They were drunk on the presence of God living inside of them. And that filled them with fearless joy. They were too happy to care what other people thought. 
They were too filled with the power and the presence of God to be afraid of anything else. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, they were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. A person who is filled with the power and the presence of God is joyfully obsessed with the gospel. They can't shut up about it. They can't stop talking about the mighty acts of God. They are so filled with joy in the gospel that the gospel overflows out of them. Being drunk with the Spirit doesn't mean that we start acting like idiots. Unfortunately, that's the way some people think about the Holy Spirit. But being drunk with the Spirit is different from being drunk with alcohol. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. See, being drunk with the Spirit doesn't make you less sane. It makes you more sane. Wine dulls you to reality, but the Spirit wakes you up to reality. The Spirit of God wakes you up to the reality of what God has done and is doing in the world, and he gives you the courage to join him in what he is doing. He fills you with a fearless joy that sends you into the world with the good news of Jesus. And here's the thing. You will be drunk on something. You will be controlled by something. You will be filled with something. You will trust in something to fulfill you and to give you the courage and the joy that you need to face the world. For some of us, that's what it is. It's alcohol or it's another substance. For some of us, it's our jobs or our families or maybe a romantic relationship. For some of us, it's our education or our bank account or the stuff we own. For some of us, it's just our own sense of inner strength and our own ability to manage the chaos of the world. But friends, none of those things will truly fill you. None of those things will give you the kind of lasting, fearless joy that can face whatever life or death throws at you. Only Jesus gives that kind of joy. Jesus brings the good wine. Jesus pours out his spirit. He fills us with the power and the presence of God so that we begin to overflow in lives of fearless joy. And Jesus says, come taste this new wine. Come have your sins forgiven. Experience the power and the presence of God living inside of you. And so maybe you've never tasted that wine. Maybe you've never tasted what it is to have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and Jesus offers it to you today. He simply calls you to stop trusting in yourself. Stop looking inside of yourself. Look to him. Look to what he did in his death and resurrection. Look to the Spirit of the power and the presence of God to come inside of you. Maybe you've tasted that wine before. Maybe you've believed in Jesus, but you've gone looking for something else to fill you. You've gone looking for hope and confidence and joy in something else. And today, Jesus invites you to come back to the table, to let him pour the wine for you so that you can drink deeply of the power and the presence of God inside of you. And, and maybe you've tasted this wine, maybe you've experienced that, but you're keeping it all to yourself. And it's time to uncork the bottle. Like, don't take this too literally, but maybe it's time for you to invite some friends or some neighbors or some coworkers over for a drink to invite them to drink and to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's drink deeply of that. Let's drink deeply of the wine that Jesus pours. Let's drink deeply of the power and the presence of God living inside of us. Let's let it control everything we are and say and do. And then let's invite other people to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
I'm convicted that so often I read this as just something that happened back then. So often I, I go through my life and I, and I don't remember that the life-giving power of God is living inside of me. That the divine presence of God has, 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 been, has landed in my heart to set my life on fire so that other people can encounter the presence of God. I'm reminded of the fact that sometimes I even stand up here and I, I preach and I, we try to look at these things and we think, well, if I preach well enough or if we do the right stuff, then we can make this happen. No, we need God to come. We need Jesus to fill us with this new wine and to make it overflow into our neighborhoods and into our towns and to this world. So let's pray and let's ask him to make it happen. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You've died, you've risen again. You're the right hand of the Father. You bring us into your very presence. You've poured out your spirit on your people. And God, if, if we're honest though, there's, there's usually a disconnect in our lives. There's a disconnect in the way we do church. There's a, there's a disconnect in the way that we try to follow you in this world. So often we try to find life. We try to find power in other places. We, we just want to draw on our own reserve of strength or our own resources or maybe the things other people can give us rather than first and foremost depending on the life-giving power of the breath of God living inside of us. So teach us our dependence on you. Give us life by your spirit. Father, so often we go throughout the week forgetting that the fire of God has come into our hearts and our lives. Lord, would you remind us of that again? For some of us, it feels like maybe the fire has gone out. Or maybe it feels like we're just kind of, kind of these dying embers inside of us. But Jesus, you promise us, and Isaiah, you promise us a, a bruised reed you will not break, and a dimly burning flax you will not quench. So I pray that you would fan that fire into flame in our lives. God, so often we go out and we're looking for all these other kinds of wine, looking for these other things to give us happiness or to give us joy or to give us courage in the world. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with the wine of your spirit. We pray that your spirit would control everything we are, everything we say, everything we do. And we pray that the wine of your spirit and the good news of your gospel would flow out of us into the world where you have sovereignly placed us. And we want to rejoice in you now. So give us this new wine. As we worship you, give us this fearless joy that only your spirit can give. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.